you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. If you did not bring your Bibles, uh, there's one in front of you. Please turn to it if you would. The page number is in your worship guide so that you can follow along and see that these things truly are the Word of God. We'll begin reading this morning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth. Beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus as he passed through. He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Please be seated. Recently, a Georgia family discovered that what they thought was junk actually was worth a whole lot. See, they had inherited some land from a deceased family member, and on the land was just an abandoned house and an abandoned garage. And in the garage was old car parts. And so they put some of the car parts online to to make a few bucks, and someone spotted something and made an inquiry. And you can probably imagine where this story is going. Sure enough, amidst all of the junk and the rusted car parts, they uncovered a fully intact 1965 Ford Shelby GT350 Mustang. One of a kind. One of only 500 that year that was made. Other than some rust and a family of raccoons that had made it their home, It was in good shape. In fact, it only had 29,000 miles on the odometer. And I know what you're thinking, because it's the same thing I'm thinking. Why can't I have some family members that leave me some junk like this as well? How much is such a car worth, you ask? Well, it's estimated between $300,000 to $500,000. Half million dollar car, not too bad for a rusted bucket of bolts. Why do I bring this up? It's because things are not as 
always as they seem. That which seems invaluable can indeed be of great worth. And that which in this life can seem very valuable can really be nothing at all. The difference is the knowledge and the eyes to see it. See, in that garage, the the owner, the family that owned that land, they, they saw nothing. They saw just rusted old car parts. But there was someone else with some knowledge, some perspective that saw treasure, that saw one of a kind. And I say all that because this story this morning is something similar. Philip, being prompted by the Holy Spirit, was told to go into the desert. And there he found an Ethiopian eunuch, part of the royal Ethiopian entourage. And he was there to inform this man about Jesus. See, this man was reading the scriptures. He was reading Isaiah, but he could not understand them. See, he had not the knowledge. He had not the perspective. His spiritual eyes were not open, but Philip's were. Philip had the knowledge. He had the understanding. And through Philip teaching him and showing him, Philip's words were, in essence, what you have here is treasure. What you have is pure gold. And through Philip's teaching, through his preaching of the good news from that scroll that this man was reading, he showed him the treasure that is Jesus Christ. More precious than anything at all. And as a result, this man, an outsider, an African, comes into true faith and is baptized right then and there. And the question that is posed before us this morning is, do we have the same eyes to see the treasure that is Jesus Christ? We'll see that in two points this morning. The outsider brought nigh, and then the outsider brought in. As we begin, just a reminder of where we are at. It's easy to miss the trees for the forest, and the forest for the trees, as you are reminded in Acts chapter 7, we had the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was a real historical man, a died a real death. His blood was literally spilt upon the earth. This is not just stories. You need to be reminded that Acts is history. It is church history. It is our history. And those drops of blood were like seismic ripple effect upon this earth. As we see in chapter 8, that his death, his martyrdom, caused more persecution in fact, Luke says there was a great persecution at the hands of Saul, who was literally ravaging the church. But more than that, and even greater than that, we have that the, through this persecution, the good news of Jesus Christ was spread. And that's what we read here in chapter 8. We read the last two weeks about how it goes out from Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria. And we have Philip that was there in Samaria, and we read last week of this man named Simon and what the church had to do with him, but we see this work of the Holy Spirit and the good news of the gospel extending into Samaria, and now we see it going even beyond Samaria, literally to the ends of the earth with the conversion of this man. 
As we will see, Lord willing, next week we will begin seeing the, the conversion of Paul, the apostle that will lead the charge in bringing the message to the ends of the earth. All of this took place because of the death of one man. And so we see, just like we see in the death of Christ, that that which is bad, that which is seen as bad and terrible and tragic can be used by God. God can use and often does use for his own glory that which seems tragic and bad for his own glory and for his own kingdom. That's just a simple reminder to us in our trials and in our tribulation that God never wastes any tears when they are committed to him and to his glory. He uses each and every one of them. So no matter what you are going through this day, be reminded of that truth that God uses all of our trials, all of our suffering, uses even persecution for his glory and for his kingdom. But what we see here now at the latter half of Acts chapter 8 is that Philip, once again, one of the seven disciples, is used mightily by the Lord. And so you should not miss that. In Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen, who was a deacon, and we have Philip, who was another deacon. We have these two deacons that are used in powerful ways, mighty ways, in preaching and teaching and evangelizing. So, so much for thinking that deacons are just mop getters and coffee makers. No, these are spiritual men that are called to do a spiritual work, not just a physical task, but a spiritual one. And we are seeing that once again. It's demonstrated here in Acts chapter 8 that Philip supernaturally is led by an angel, a messenger of the Lord. Again, we would not say that this is normative, but as God opens up this door to the Gentiles, this door to the ends of the earth, he is called by God, called by this angel to go and do a task. And the message that is given to him is quite a strange one, right? When we read of it in verse 26, rise and go towards the south to the road that the, goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now you might say, well, why is that such a, a strange request? Well, I think you have it there in that parenthetical statement by Luke when he says, this is a desert. This is a desert place. In other words, this is not a place that you would naturally be inclined to go. And therefore, you know that this is an authentic word from the Lord. When people say, I have a word from the Lord, and that word from the Lord is that you need to give me money, you can usually be confident that that is not a word from the Lord. Why? Because that is something that each and every one of us would naturally want. And often that is just that person's natural desire, sometimes their greedy desire, speaking. And they're using it in the name of the Lord or in the authority of God himself, which is quite wrong and sinful in many ways. But if someone got a message or an inclination from the Lord to go to the desert, they are either certifiably insane or they really did receive a message from the Lord because none of us would be naturally inclined to go 
to the deserts. I have a good buddy of mine, a good PCA pastor that had a good-sized church outside of the Chicago area. It was a, a great place to be. It was a good church. It was a good growing ministry. But a few years ago, he told me, he said, Joel, I have a burden. I have this desire to go to Utah to possibly plant a, a Presbyterian church there amongst the Mormons. And I said to him, Ben, that's his name, Ben, so you want to go to the desert to plant a Presbyterian church, which is very rare, amongst the Mormons, which is rarer still. Dude, you need to seriously pray about that because either that is the most insane thing I've ever heard or that is from the Lord. And so that is what he is. He is not insane. He is going to to plant, Lord willing, a Presbyterian church in southern Utah. Maybe he is a little bit crazy, but we need to do crazy things for the Lord. He has left his church in Chicago. He's support raising now, and he hopes to be there by May of this year to plant a church in St. George, Utah, a place with almost 70% Mormons, to plant a, a, not only a Reformed church, but a, a Presbyterian church. And the closest Reformed or Presbyterian church will be over 100 miles away. This is the work of the Lord to go to literally a desert place, both physically as well as spiritually. And so the Lord is still doing the same, calling men to go, women to go and preach the gospel in such places as this. So too, Philip is called by the Lord to go to the desert. And there's something very incredible about that. Why? Because Philip, remember, was in Samaria And what was taking place in Samaria when he went there? Well, revival was taking place. The the very revival that we pray for, that we desire to see here in our city, right here in Smyrna, that's what was taking place in Samaria as the Holy Spirit goes and the Philip goes and Peter and John go and they preach and they have incredible results. It says in verse 8 that there was much joy in that city. Can you imagine? This is a a preacher's dream to go and see this mighty conversion of these Samaritans and this joy that they have and the joy that Philip would have had. And now Philip is called to leave that and go where? To the desert. You can imagine, or at least I would, if I was Philip, be saying, "Are, are you sure, Lord? Because things are going really well right here. Uh, this, this is fun. This is, this is a lot of joy. Are you sure they need me over there? Don't they need me right here? And yet Philip goes because he's called to go. And if you want to see what Holy Spirit driven and led missions and ministry looks like, you need look no further than, than Philip, that he was willing to be, be prompted by God to, to go to the desert. And there, in the desert, he is led to this caravan. And Luke, the the good doctor, provides a lot of details about this person that he is to meet there in the desert. We read that this man was an Ethiopian. Now, when we think of Ethiopia, we think of a 
famished land with starving children. But that has not always historically been true. Ethiopia, like Egypt, had many treasures and at a time was a, was a crown of, of Africa, part of the, the trading mecca of the world. And so it would have been a very powerful country at that time. And it says that this man was a part of the royal court of Candace. And Candace is the official title of the queen mother, just like Pharaoh was a, a title in Egypt. So Candace was not the, the name of this queen. It was her title. And the, the queen was the, the queen mother. And she would essentially call the shots because the king was seen as too important to deal with the, the common things of the people, the, the common things of ruling the land. He just needed to kind of sit on the throne and, and do kingly things. And the, the queen mother would take care of everything. And so that fell on this woman. She is the one that got things done. And I know what you're thinking, ladies. That's still true. <laughs> ladies are the ones that get things done, and that's not totally untrue. And this man, his role was to oversee the, the treasury. He was like the CFO of Ethiopia, meaning he was powerful, and he was in a trusted position. And furthermore, it says that he was a, a eunuch. It was probably required for that position and so it demonstrates, perhaps in a radical way, devotion, willingly or forcefully, in order to have this position, that he would have no hope of being married, that he would have no hope of a family. He was fully devoted to this position, to, to give of his life for this queen. And so we see this very important, powerful perhaps rich, fully devoted man. And yet I think we could say that he was completely unfulfilled. Completely unfulfilled. Why do I say that? Because, well, he came all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. And we're not sure why, other than by the power of the Holy Spirit, what drew him to, to Jerusalem, but we understand that that was not right next door. This man didn't just catch the, the early morning flight from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. No, he had to travel there by chariot and no doubt have many others that would come along with him to protect him and provide for him. And so this was quite an undertaking. It would have taken probably a very long time to assemble this and then even to get permission from the queen to be able to, to go. And yet he desired to go. Why was that? Well, I would say the very least, it was because he was a seeker. Now, I know that term gets a, a bad rap in our circles. Because most people say, there's no such thing as seekers. Romans chapter 1, no one seeks. No one seeks God, no, not one. And that is true. No one seeks in their natural sense. We do not seek God. God seeks us. But those that he does seek, he calls. And he does so effectually. But does that mean that that effectual call happens instantaneously? It can. We know it does. We'll read of it with Saul's conversion in the next chapter. But I would say that is not normative. 
For most, it is a process. An effectual process, yes, but an effectual one that takes sometimes quite long. Perhaps that is your story. As you look back and see what God has done, how the Lord was doing a work for sometimes, maybe even years, before you fully came to Christ. Until you fully understood the gospel, until you had that faith, he was leading you, he was drawing you to himself. And I would say that for the same reasons that this man was drawn to seek, so too were the same reasons you were drawn to seek after God, seek after the Lord Jesus Christ. It was perhaps because there was a a restless spirit within you. Perhaps you had a discontent soul. Maybe your life, as you looked at it, was, was unfulfilled. And you're thinking, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something of substance. And I think that's what this story demonstrates, doesn't it? That you can have it all and yet have nothing. This man had everything. And yet it was nothing at all. It was like Ethiopian sand that was just running through his fingers. There was nothing of substance that he could hold on to. Nothing that would fulfill his soul, his very life. It was all dust. It was all dirt. Many of you may know this. This last week, my family and I moved to a a new home. And so it was very much a, a busy week. This sermon was constructed mostly in my mind, while moving boxes. Uh, Thanks be to God, we got it done, along with some brothers, some good brothers from this church to help us. And there was something interesting that happens when you move. You become intimately aware of all of your stuff. Because it's right there in your face. You see all of it. And you see all of it that has to be moved from one place to another. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm very thankful for all my stuff. I'm thankful for my coffee maker and my toaster that toasts my bread. But at the end of the day, that's all it is, isn't it? It's just stuff. And I had this thought, perhaps it's an odd thought that only pastors think, but while I was moving all of this, I thought, you know what, all of this is one day just going to to burn. None of it's going to last. All of it is wood, hay, and stubble. And if I had one-tenth of the things that I do, or if I had ten times the things that I do, none of it still would matter. It has no significance. It has no meaning. In many ways, I felt like the preacher in Ecclesiastes that says, when you look to the things below the sun, it is as vanity. Vanity, vanity. It is all vanity, says the preacher. It's like a vapor that has no substance whatsoever. I think that was the spiritual state of this man. Perhaps that is where you're at as well. But yet, we see that the Lord was at work in this man's life as he was searching, as he was seeking, as he was no doubt praying, and this day that prayer would be answered in the form of Philip, who by divine appointment would be along that desert road. And what we see is that this outsider that was brought nigh is finally brought in. As he was reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, maybe it was his souvenir from Israel. 
And he got a scroll from the, the most famous prophet of Israel, that of Isaiah. And it has something beautiful in this passage. It says that he was re- reading Isaiah chapter 53. You see it there in verses 32 and 33. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. And Philip asks just one question. Do you know what you're reading? Do you understand? Do you have meaning? Do you have significance to it? And I love the honesty of this man's response. He says, how can I? Unless someone explains it to me. You know what the chief quality of a seeker is? You know when you found one? Because they have the humility to ask. They have the the willingness to learn. He doesn't say, what do you mean? Do I understand? Do you know who I am? Do you know understand what position I am? Do you understand what education I have? Of course I know. No. He says, help me. I don't understand. But I want to understand. Give me that understanding. A humble and gentle spirit the Lord will not despise. And that is true not just of seekers, that is true of all of us, isn't it? That we would continue to seek and desire more and to understand and to have the knowledge of, of God that this man desired to have. And I love it because he, he keeps asking questions. You see it there in verse 34 when this passage is read. He says, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or, or someone else? And so he invites this man to, to come into his chariot, this man that he has never met. And you have this beautiful scene where you have Philip, a Jew, a Hellenistic Jew, but nonetheless a Jew, and this eunuch from Ethiopia who was a Gentile. You can even go as far to say that you have Philip who is a, a less melanin man with a Ethiopian who is a darker melanin man sitting together in a chariot. And what brings them together? The scriptures. And more importantly, Jesus gathering around the scriptures to hear about Christ. If you want racial reconciliation in America, here is the answer. People sometimes ask, what are we doing about racial reconciliation in our country? And I tell them, we're preaching and teaching the scriptures. And they say, which ones? And I say, all of them. <laughs> Why? I'm not trying to, to, to be snarky or think that we have it all together or that we have it right or figured out that there's many more things that we can do, but there's one thing that we cannot not do, and that is not preach the scriptures and not preach Christ because that's what brings together Jew and Gentile. That's what brings together white and black. That's what brings together young and old, that we have this common bond, and that common bond is Christ. As we come to the table this morning, just take a picture of all the people that come up to this table. And then when you come to the fellowship hall, just look around. You'd say, what is it that brings all these people together? We would have nothing in common if it was not for Christ. But in Christ... We have everything. That's what the Apostle Paul says, right? He himself is our peace who has made us both 
one and he's broken down in his flesh the wall of hostility. What we see in Acts chapter eight is giant walls of hostility being broken down in the name of the gospel. You have a Jew and an Ethiopian. You have a Jew and a eunuch traveling in a chariot. Sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's not. It's the gospel at work, my friends. And what we see in this chariot is the work of the Holy Spirit, that along a desert road, this man becomes a fully, fully a child of God and a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This outsider, this Gentile, this foreigner to the covenant is brought in. He is brought home. What he could not find in Jerusalem, he found in Jesus. And it reminds me of Isaiah chapter 43, where Isaiah says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing, and it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness, a river in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. Here in the the desert, this man found the, the living water, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that longing, that thirst was fulfilled. I wonder if you found the same. If you found Christ to, to be the fulfilling of your deepest longings, Jesus says that those that come to me will thirst no more. Are you thirsting? If so, come to, to Christ. Stop digging your own cisterns that the prophets say are just uh, broken down cisterns that contain no water when the living water is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and drink of him. That's what this man found. He found spiritual water. And interestingly enough, he also found physical water. Because it says, look, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, we don't quite understand how he knew about baptism. If it was Philip that told him or he saw it while he was in Jerusalem. But he knew that he needed to be baptized. And it's interesting that Philip baptizes him. Philip doesn't say, well, you know what? you got to hold on just a minute. Because back in Samaria where I came from, there was this guy named Simon that I baptized and he turned out to be a false convert. And so I'm not so sure that we should do this right now. Let's give it about six months or a year and then we will baptize you into the family of God. No, Philip says, let's go. Now, how there was water in the desert is about as miraculous as any other part of this story. Now, thankfully, our view of baptism, you don't need a whole lot of water, just need some. But if you want to believe that he was immersed because he went down into the water, then you have to also believe that Philip was baptized as well because it says they went down into the water. And what I think that phrase means, went down into the water, not only here but in other places, is not the mode of baptism, but the direction in which they went. See, to get to a body of water, if it be a lake or a pond or a stream, in what direction do you have to go? You always have to go down, right? Nobody goes up to go to the water. So they went down into the water, meaning they literally walked down. And then in verse 37, it says that they came back up out of the water. But the point is this, no matter what view of baptism you have, it's not the amount of water that truly matters, is it? It's what that water symbolizes. 
And that baptism, that water symbolizes the, the marking out, God marking out his own, representing the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of all of our iniquities, the inclusion into the family of God. And that day, that man received salvation. And he also received the sign of that salvation, which is baptism. We see after they did this baptism, it says that the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. I've always read that to think that it was like, poof, Philip was, was gone, or that the Spirit, like Scotty from Star Trek, beamed him up. And after reading over it a little bit more and studying it, I'm not saying that that couldn't be the case. But I think perhaps more what it is saying is that uh, the Spirit brought him one way and the eunuch went the other. That they departed, no longer able to, to see each other in this life. Philip had more ministry to do. And this Ethiopian eunuch was sent on his way. And if church tradition is true, he went to Ethiopia. And many came to Christ because of his testimony, because of his witness, because of his desert encounter, not only with Philip, but with Jesus. And so what we see here is something very significant. This is the, the first fruits of the gospel going to the very ends of the earth. That from the death of Stephen, one chapter ago, we see the gospel going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth, which includes Smyrna, Georgia. The Spirit of God is at work. God is faithful to his promises. And it all started with one man, one Ethiopian eunuch, one outsider, that's brought in There's several applications that we can make from this text this morning. First is that the Bible has one central message, and that is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Philip used an Old Testament message, an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, to share the good news of the gospel. From the beginning to the end, the scriptures have one point, and it is Christ. If you've missed that, then you've missed everything. That is central to the message of Scripture. Therefore, it's central to the message of the church. That's why we center and focus on Christ. Our purpose statement is to, to know Christ, to grow Christ, and to show forth the love of Christ. That is Christ from beginning to end. It is always our theme. We can't allow other things to distract us. We can't allow other things to, to get us off mission. No, we need to have Christ be central to who we are as a church. I told the new members class this morning that started this morning, as I tell every new members class, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. And for whatever reason that brought you here, we're, we're glad that you're here today. And the same is true for each and every one of you that is sitting in the pews or watching online this day. It doesn't matter what brought you here. There's only one thing that ultimately matters that you understand and that you hear and that is, do you know Christ? And do you have that faith in him? That you be reconciled to a holy God. And what a joy and blessing that is. What good news that truly is that we are able to proclaim each and every week. And the second, I think what we need to see from this passage is that we would understand that there are many seekers around us. Perhaps you're one of them this morning sitting in this pew, 
If that's you, then again, glad that you are here. We're not going to, to pressure you. We're not going to have you fill out a card or, or walk an aisle. Why? Because this is a whole life commitment. Christ demands and accepts nothing less than your full and total commitment. And if you're not willing to, to give that, then you're not willing to come to Christ this day. You're not willing to, to truly have faith in him. But I would ask you, what is it that you're holding on to? What are you not willing to give up? And is it really worth it? Is it fulfilling? I tell you, it's not. Like I said before, it's just wood, hay, and stubble. It won't last. It won't fulfill. It was never meant to. But I promise you that Christ will. Christ will. He is the treasure that gets better and better with every passing day, with every passing year. And we have all eternity to, to treasure him all the more. So come to Christ. And I ask you, church, is that, is that the message that we have for the world? You don't know who the Holy Spirit is doing a work in. Those people that could be right around you. Those in your neighborhood and those in your workplace and those in your family and those that are sitting next to you on the, the airplane as you take that business flight or those that are standing in the aisle with you as you wait to be checked out. I think we need to see people like God would see them. That they are perhaps potentially seekers that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in and that the Lord would be willing to use us like he uses Philip here to, to be a part of God's work in that person's life. We, we may just be a small link on a, a very long chain and we may not be that very end link and that's okay. Paul says that I planted Apollos water but God gave the increase. Therefore God gets the glory, none of us. And so how would we do that? Well, first of all, I would say live as a Christian. Live as salt and life. Don't try to hide that. Don't try to hide that light. But the, the second, I would say, a very practical encouragement is, is ask people to, to read the Bible. Just like Philip does here. This man was reading the scriptures and, and the man, Philip, just comes along and says, do you understand? Let me give you some explanation. And perhaps that's what, what we need to do as well is to, to give people the scriptures and ask them to read it. Give them the Bible. If you don't have a Bible this morning, that, that Bible that's in front of you, take it home with you. If you're talking to somebody that also doesn't have a Bible, take that one in the pew and give it to them, please. It'll be our gift, our joy, our delight to get the word of God out there. You never know what the, the Lord will do. I haven't asked his permission for this, but I, I'll ask for forgiveness rather than permission, I guess. All of us know our dear, beloved, assisted pastor, Pastor Myers. Pastor Myers wasn't always Pastor Myers. He wasn't born from the womb known as Pastor Myers. In other words, he was a sinner that needed to come to Christ. If you ask that man, what was the turning point in his life? He'll tell you it was someone saying, would you read the scriptures with me? And that's what changed a dead sinner into a live man that knows Christ that we now call Pastor Myers. And that's a simple question to ask. Would you read the scriptures with me? 
And through it, you never know what the Lord will do. And I just wonder how many more Dannys are out there. How many more Ethiopian eunuchs are right around us? We don't know, do we? But we need to start thinking in that way. We need to keep that perspective. You never know what the Lord could do. Don't think about who these people are. Think about what they could be if Christ got a hold of them. What an impact they could make if we would collectively use ourselves of the Lord. Man, we... Yes, we believe in infant or household baptism. Yes, we do believe in that, but we also believe in believer's baptism. Wouldn't it be a joy if we were, we were starting to wet the floor with baptisms of conversions of people coming to Christ? Would you pray in that way? Would you go forth gospeling the good news of Jesus Christ to see others to know this one? I'll finish with this. I know I've gone too long, but ask for your forgiveness. Philip went all the way to the desert for what? For one lost soul. And it reminds me of the parable of Jesus tells of the shepherd leaving the 99 to, to go and gain the one lost sheep that is wandering. And what does it say in that parable? That when the shepherd finds that one, he gathers all of his friends to rejoice. And Jesus says that there is more rejoicing in one lost soul that is found, the 99 that do not need to be rescued. Well, the good shepherd went further than the desert to rescue us, didn't he? He went all the way from heaven to this curse-ridden earth, all the way to death, death on a cross, to find, to, to rescue, and to redeem us. And when he did, there was much rejoicing in heaven. Shouldn't we join in that rejoicing today? not only for your own salvation as you come to this table, but isn't our rejoicing enhanced when we're able to rejoice with others that have found the same? Would the Lord be pleased to use us like he did Philip to bring many, many to himself? May it be so. Amen.